You are listening to The Exchange. I'm your host, Dr. Lorraine. Hello, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about biblical understanding, the biblical understanding for women in leadership. And I am so excited to have one of my fellow UGST friends with me, Brother Jason Weatherly, and he is going to be speaking to us about a book that he wrote on this topic. So thank you so much, Brother Jason, for joining me on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to go ahead and just jump right in, and I wanted just to talk to you about um, this subject, but I wanted you to first tell us about yourself. For those of you who are not familiar with um, Brother Weatherly, tell us where you're from, your family, your education, and your ministry, and all that wonderful things that you're doing right now. Right. My name is Jason Weatherly. I'm from Arkansas, live in the city of Cabot. Tim Gaddy is my pastor. I'm married to the lovely Nicole Weatherly. We have a house full of children, uh, some grown, some still at home. We have a few grandchildren. Uh, I'm a licensed UPCI minister. I earned a Bachelor of Science, summa cum laude, in leadership and ministry from Central Baptist College in Conway, Arkansas. Um, I, was a, a, I was inducted, not abducted, I was inducted into Alpha Key Collegiate Honor Society and then I moved on from there to uh, UGST, where I earned a Master of Divinity. And currently, I'm in the dissertation phase of a PhD in theological studies from Columbia Biblical Seminary of Columbia International University out in South Carolina. Ministry-wise, been involved in small group ministry, jail ministry, helped uh, set up a celebrate recovery ministry at our church, preach, I teach, I'm an instructor for our local Purpose Institute campus. I've been an adjunct professor for Harvest Bible College. I am currently an adjunct professor for Urshan College, and then I serve from time to time as a research or teaching assistant for the professors at uh, UGST. Awesome. Okay. And so, um, Brother Jason and I, we took some online classes together there at UGST. I think we might have done some also some J terms there. Mm-hmm. As well when I lived there on campus in St. Louis area. Um, so we are going to talk about um, the book that you wrote. So I wanted to ask, where did the idea for your book, Great Was the Company of Women? And I have been reading that book and have just absolutely been eating it up. And I um, have it on my Kindle. So you see me there just highlighting so many wonderful things. So where did the inspiration for that book come from? Well, I've so many different books written uh, from non-apostolics on the subject of women in ministry. And we as one as Pentecostals, we have a different hermeneutic already because of our view on the new birth, uh, spirit baptism as being essential to the new birth. It also makes everything builds upon the oneness of the Godhead and Acts 2.38 salvation. So I always use the illustration of a, of a house. We've built the foundation. That's Deuteronomy 6.4, the oneness of the Godhead, Acts 2.38 for salvation. Everything builds on that foundation. So non-apostolics, they may have a different view toward women in ministry already because they're not built on the same foundation. So I wanted a pure, purely apostolic view on women in ministry, and certainly I'm not the first one that's Pentecostal to write on women in ministry, but everything that I saw was not quite as academic 
addict as what I wanted to present. And also, if you if you're familiar with the issue of women in ministry, typically there are two schools of thought. Uh, the the predominant schools of thought one is complementarians, which mm-hmm. believe that men and women have complementary roles, diverse and complementary roles in the home and in the church. So that men are the leaders in the home, men are the leaders in the church, and that women should not participate in active pulpit ministry. And then you have on the other side of that spectrum, the egalitarians that believe that men and women share equal roles in the home and in the church, and they typically advocate for uh, women in pulpit ministry. Somewhere in the middle, I think, is the true apostolic view. So my book is not a it is not complementarian. It is not egalitarian. I think that there are good things to glean from both of those. And then as the old cliche goes, we chew up the meat and we spit out. the. So I wanted to give a purely what I believe is an apostolic theology on women in ministry based in my, the audience for my book is a oneness Pentecostal audience. If someone who's not a one is Pentecostal, that they'll get some things out of it, but they're going to read nuanced things that we believe because it ties into our belief on spirit baptism, initial evidence of tongues, and then even how we view the gifts of the spirit of the church. So that's where the catalyst for it came from. And then the title, Great Was a Company of Women, is a um, variant translation of Psalm 6811, which is the very front of the book, I have various translations of Psalm 6811 with the title of the book, Great Was the Company of Women, uh, over kind of superimposed over all those translations. Okay, very cool. And you're right, there are many people that have written these, but, you know, yours is from an academic perspective. And so, you know, I think it's great that we have people that are writing, but it's more important to get it right Um interpret interpreting it from what the bible Mm. says and being able to dig into it um and i've heard a lot of people say well we read it just as we read it but um i think i heard brother bernard say something like um as apostolics you know when we read scriptures like you know baptizing in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost we don't take that for face value or when it says um that we uh and, you know, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth and talking about that in Genesis account, but it says, um, talking about kind of, it sounded like it was Trinity, but we as apostolics don't take that. We actually have to study it out and we have to, you know, make sure that the word of God all comes together because there is no confusion. All of it fits together nicely. Exactly. And exactly. So, and so that's kind of one of the things that I love that you've kind of done is just researched it out. Um, so again, many have um, believed that women are not qualified to preach or have any place in leadership in the church. What do you say is the most profound part of your research that contradicts that idea? And I know you've well, taken a lot of pieces of it, but what is like the main piece? Well, one of the things is the fact that women have been so active in ministry from the Old Testament through the New Testament. You look at uh God's call of Miriam as a prophetess or or Deborah as a prophetess and a judge, and then even into the New Testament of those women who ministered and labored in the gospel with Paul, but even more on a personal level for one as Pentecostals, the modern day Pentecostal movement 
has had women leaders in it from day one. Now, we think about the great revival in, in Topeka, Kansas, and it's Charles Parham who gets uh, the recognition there. But it was really Agnes Osmond who was the first one who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the, the 20th century, a woman missionary going over into China. And then from there, we have the Azusa Street Revival with William Seymour. But William Seymour was not the one who laid hands on Edward Lee, and then Edward Lee received the Holy Spirit. It was Lucy Farrow, mm -hmm. a woman preacher, and she stayed there with uh, Seymour while this Azusa Street Revival was just flourishing. As a matter of fact, from a, a oneness Pentecostal point of view, Lucy Farrow even has a connections into the oneness Pentecostal churches because when Howard Goss first received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, there came a time shortly in his ministry where he was having trouble speaking in tongues. For, for whatever reason, he would, would seek after the Lord and he, he couldn't speak in tongues until it got to the point where he either, if I remember the story right, he either brought Lucy to him or he found out where she was and he he went to one of her her crusades, and she had she was known for this uh, anointing or gift of laying hands on people and them receiving the Holy Spirit. And so when Lucy Farrell laid hands on Howard Goss, he spoke in tongues again. And from that point on, he testified he never had any issues with speaking in tongues and praying through uh, to the Holy Spirit. The thing though is that history is often his story. And so there have been prominent women, not just in the Bible, but in church history and especially in the Pentecostal churches. Um, I say a lot of times <clears throat> we have no problem with women singing about Acts 2.38, testifying from their, their seat about Acts 2.38, uh, speaking in tongues and giving an interpretation about Acts 2.38, prophesying about Acts 2.38, but bless God, they better not step behind a pulpit, open their Bible to Acts 2.38, and expound a pre-made message. It just is not consistent with our uh, pneumatology on the gifts of the Spirit and how that interacts into a body ministry of believers. And that it really just blows my mind when you think about that. And the whole Lucy Farrow, um, Agnes Newman, um, Agnes Osmond, I'm sorry, I think about as our modern Pentecostal movement class with Dr. Robin Johnston and learning those things. It was like, wow, that's what we talk about. We talk about uh, Charles Parham, we talk about William Seymour, but we don't talk about those other huge characters. Right. Um, and so I, I love that you mentioned that. And so what are some of the biggest misinterpreted passages of the scripture that keep women from ministry? And we just talked about just women, you know, throughout history and in the Bible, but what are like the main passages that people are like, no, this is what this means. You know, it can't mean that. Well, the way I start the book starts with one of the most uh, widely misunderstood passages. Because what I do is I start in Genesis. Again, we go back to this idea of a foundation. If you start off on the wrong foundation, then everything that's built upon it is going to be off. And so this concept of uh, the woman's curse in childbearing, it's never called a curse. God never cursed the woman. He cursed the ground for the man's sake. He cursed the serpent. But to the woman, he simply said, uh, you shall experience suffering and childbearing, your desire shall be to your husband. Now, there is a conflict in marriage relationship from the from the judgment and the curse in, in Genesis 3, but 
God never used that because thou hast cursed language in reference to the woman. And so when you have a misunderstanding of what Genesis 3 is talking about, then everything else gets kind of built upon that. So Genesis 3 uh, is one of the major verses then that plays into, into the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, probably the three main passages used against uh, women in pulpit ministry, and I keep emphasizing pulpit ministry. See, a lot of times we don't have an issue with missionary ministry. Right. They can go to Africa. They can go to to uh, Brazil. We don't have a problem with uh, witnessing. Uh, it's not as prevalent today, but you know, door knocking ministry. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have any issues with testifying. It's pulpit. When they get behind this piece of furniture that's not even in the New Testament, uh, you you have a setting like a small group, and people have no problem whatsoever with a woman uh, expounding on the, the gospel, the word of God in a small group house setting, and they don't even realize that the very first churches, uh, when the Gentiles came into the pictures, that was, they became house churches. Before the Gentiles, they met. Then afterwards, you had house churches, and that's what you read of in Romans 16, and uh, there's a lot of ladies mentioned in Romans 16 as a part of those house church. But anyway, the three prominent uh, passages in the New Testament that, that are misunderstood about women in ministry. The first one, of course, is 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul said, let your women keep silent in the church, for it's not permitted unto them to speak. If they want to learn anything, let them ask their husband at home, or it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. And then uh, 1 Timothy 2 where he said, I do not permit a woman to teach nor to use her authority over a man, but to be in silence. Then the other one is the qualifications of bishop and deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So those are the three primary New Testament passages, but a lot of that is built upon a, a misunderstanding of Genesis 3, that the woman was cursed and childbearing is a curse. How many times have we heard of the curse of pain and childbearing? That's never referred to as a curse whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that you had mentioned, and I'll go into when we're talking about the qualifications of, uh, you know, what it's supposed to be. And I know it says, you know, the, the, the wife, uh, the husband of one wife and, Mm -hmm. and, um, and then it talks about how, you know, if they have to be ruled or house well, if they have children and, you know, when I have learned about that, I love the fact that people point out, you know, that means that it can't be somebody who's not married. And so it automatically disqualifies anybody who is single, which would have been Jesus, which would have been Paul, which would have been Timothy more than likely was not married. Um, and so just so many things that if we start to look at these scriptures and start to dig into them, that they don't necessarily mean what we take them for face value. Exactly. Even going back to the Old Testament, because a lot of times people like to use the Old Testament priesthood as a uh, requirement for New Testament ministry. And they will say things like, well, there were no women in the Old Testament priesthood, so there could there should not be any women in the New Testament ministry. Okay, if that's the qualifications we're going to use, then notice this, there were no Gentiles in the Old Testament priesthood. Matter of fact, there were very few Jews because it was only one bloodline. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't as if every Israelite could be a member of the priesthood. Then 
when they point out the fact that there were no women in the Old Testament priesthood, they sure do like to ignore a lot of the other qualifications, like you couldn't wear these, and I'm not wearing mine because it would put a glare on them mm -hmm. from my computer screen, but you couldn't have poor eyesight. You right. you couldn't be hunchback. You had to be a certain height requirement. If we're say we women can't be in ministry because there were no women in the Old Testament priesthood, well, then let's do like the uh, at the amusement parks and let's put a, a ruler up and say that everybody in the ministry has to meet this height requirement and can't be this height requirement. There's also an age limitation. You know what? If we we're going to apply that age limitation, there's a lot of ministers that would have to retire out because you couldn't be a minister in the, the Levitical priesthood up to a, you know, you couldn't start at a certain age. And then when you reached a certain age, you had to retire out. Well, the fact of the matter is none of that has anything to do with the five-fold ministry of the New Testament. The priesthood, according to 1 Peter 2, the priesthood of the New Testament are those of us who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, Martin Luther did not invent the priesthood of believers. Paul preached the priesthood of believers. And so then when you get into uh, 1 Timothy 3 with these qualifications of bishops and deacons, and they say, well, a, a, a bishop or a deacon must be the husband of one wife, and a, 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 a woman cannot be the husband of a wife, so only a man can be a bishop or a deacon. Well, they haven't quite said that correctly. That's, you know, that may be truth, but it's not the whole truth, because if that's the qualification you're going to go with, it's not just a man. It's a married man, mm -hmm. a husband of one wife. So if you're going to say that a woman could not be a bishop or a deacon because she can't be a husband, then by the same token, you're going to have to say that only husbands can be bishops, pastors, or deacons, ministers. And then it says, let them rule their children, plural. Mm -hmm. So if we're, if we're going to you know, uh, uh, get to the brass tacks on this, they have to have at least two children. That is not the be-all, end-all qualifications. Uh, husband of one wife, meaning they must be faithful in their marriage. And if they have children, then they must have children that are well-behaved. Uh, the other thing to that is even if Paul was talking about men as bishops and men as deacons, that ideology that women cannot play a role in the ministry ignores the fact that he says, Likewise, also the women. Now, the King James and other translations say their wives, but there's no personal pronoun in Greek. It is just simply the word gene, women. Likewise, also the women. So whatever the qualifications of the bishop, the qualifications of a deacon, Paul also included women into those ministries. And we can clearly see that in Romans 16, 1 and 2 where he specifically referred to Phoebe, our sister, as a deacon, a diacon. So the, a deacon, a minister, is not limited to just men. Phoebe was also a deacon, and those qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are not limited to just men, because Paul specifically included in those qualifications, likewise also the women. And I just wanted to know that we're kind of talking about this. I just kind of wanted to bring something else out as well is that people have also said that about the disciples, the 12 disciples, where there was no women, but 
if we're actually thinking about that as well, like they were all Jewish men. Exactly. And so that would be another thing that <laughs> today, if you were a Gentile, you know, more than likely you could not be a disciple if that's what all you're using as to, you know, have what you decide is going to be a disciple and what can't be a disciple. Yeah, we like to pick and choose sometimes. And when I say we, I'm just, I'm meaning broadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they like to, to pick and choose their qualifications, not really valid qualifications whatsoever. The qualification of being in the ministry is being God called. That's the difference between the priesthood and the fivefold ministry. The priesthood was a, a, a service you were born into. Mm-hmm. The ministry is something that you are called into. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He wouldn't even have been a priest. So uh, there's a there's big differences. It's like trying to say, well, you know, the the priest served in a ministry capacity in the temple, but all of that ministry capacity is related in the New Testament to the believers. We go to the altar of sacrifice for ourselves. We have been in the laver of water through baptism in Jesus' name. And we have boldness to go through that veil, that is to say his flesh, into that holiest place. So there's there's not a correlation between or the fact that Jesus called 12 men, 12 Jewish men, uh, 12 naturally born Jewish men, not even proselytes as his disciples. Uh, and I also wanted to go into, we just mentioned the other passage of scripture that talks about that, you know, women need to be, it's a shame for a woman to, you know, teach a man or to be, have authority. And so can you explain, explain to that, us that as well? Like, how does that kind of, you know, how does that kind of fit together with uh, women doing ministry when, you know, the scripture said in there that women are supposed to keep silent and they're not supposed to teach or have any authority over men? Yeah. So I'm going to pull up. Um, let's, let's look at first Corinthians 14 first real quick. The thing I like to point out in first Corinthians 14 is when they say, well, Paul told women to keep silent in the church. Uh, okay. Well, Paul didn't just tell women to keep silent in the church. He told two other groups of people to keep silent in church. Well, told the tongue talkers to keep silent in the church. He said, if anyone's going to speak in tongues, let it be two or three, and then let someone interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. The exact same phrase <laughs> as talking about the women. Now, certainly we don't tell people who speak in tongues that that means they can't preach, right? right. We wouldn't have any preachers. And it's so it's the Greek word sigao, uh, to keep silence. And it's the exact same phrase, silence in the church. Then he also told the prophets. He said, let the prophets speak two or three. Uh, and let the other ones, uh, the King James, I think, says keep peace, but it is the same word, sigao, keep silence. So we can surmise from the context that the reason why Paul told these people to keep silent was because there was confusion going on in the church. Too many people speaking in tongues, nobody giving an interpretation, and Paul basically said, in tongues, and if you don't have the interpretation, keep silent. Same thing with the prophets. Too many people prophesying, no one giving judgment on whether or not these prophecies are from God. So let two or three prophesy, let the others keep silent. Well, we can devise from what Paul's language is toward the women what the problem was. He said, let the women keep silent in the church for it's not permitted on them to speak. And if they want to learn anything, 
let them ask their own husbands at home. This at home language is the same thing that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11, where he dealt with those who were hungry and using the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to you know, eat their dinner, so to speak, and get their belly full. And he said, don't you have houses to eat in? Let them eat at home, as opposed to this trouble they were causing in the church for the Lord's Supper. Well, the same thing here. Let your women keep silent in the churches. It's not permitted to speak. There's, there's so much more we could get into. The speaking there is an infinitive. Um, it it is, could be descriptive of continuous speaking. This wasn't just a one-time speaking. But even the context, it's not dealing with women teaching. It's dealing with women learning. So obviously from the context of the tongue talkers, too many people talking in tongues, nobody giving an interpretation, Paul corrected that and said, hey, keep silent. Too many people prophesying, nobody giving judgment. Paul corrected that and said, let two or three prophesy, you keep silent. Apparently, the women were causing an issue with asking questions, not only asking questions, but asking questions of people other than their husbands. And Paul said, hey, if you want to ask a question, if you want to learn, ask your husband at home. So the same context, you have three people, three groups of people in Corinthians, Paul told to keep silent, and not in any of those does that disqualify them from preaching. If we say that let your women keep silent means that the women can't, by that same token, we're going to have to say that when Paul told the tongue talkers and the prophets to keep silent, then that means they can't preach as well. But the truth of the context is there was confusion going on, and to correct that confusion, Paul said, we need, to, we need you to keep silent for uh, this situation. And then in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2 is the one that I, I really love because this goes to a, especially a oneness Pentecostal holiness kind of hermeneutics here. Because when you look at 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 11 and 12, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. Go back a few verses. Let's get some context here. Paul says in verse 8, I desire therefore that the men, and that's important to notice, it's plural, talking about men, therefore the men pray everywhere, lifting up at them doubting, in the like manner also that women, so here we have women in the plural, adorn themselves in modest apparel with, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which is proper for women, again, plural, women, professing godliness with good works. We use this passage and a parallel passage to it all the time to explain each other, and that is 1 Timothy 2 with 1 Peter 3, and that's going to be important here in just a minute. 1 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 2 are the only two passages in the New Testament that deal with women's adornment, their hair, broided hair, plated hair, uh, wearing of gold or pearls or expensive clothing. So Paul starts off with talking about men and women. So we're talking about men and women in general. But then he says in verse 11, let a woman learn a woman. That's singular. Mm -hmm. Let a wo woman learn in silence with all submission. Not simply submission, all submission. Passe kupatage, all submission. Who is a woman to be in all submission to? It should be her, her husband. Her husband. Mm -hmm. 
So the the sister, you you are not under all submission to me. Uh, my wife is not under all submission to to every man in the church. She's in all submission. My wife is in all submission to me. A wife is a woman is to only be in all submission to either if she's not married, then her father, if she's still in her father's house, or most especially in this context, to her husband. And the word wife in Greek, or the, the word woman and the word wife in English translate the same word in Greek, gene. And so when we when we understand that, that Paul has went from talking about all men, men pray everywhere, let your women, talk about all women, then he focuses on an individual woman. Let a woman learn in all subjection. So now we're talking about one particular woman who is to be in all subjection. Then he says, I do not permit a woman, again, a singular gene, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, and that's the singular on air, but to be in silence. In I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's in the book, but I, I want to say it's like 27 verses in the New Testament. Gene and Aner appear together in singular form, and 99.9% of those passages deal with a context of a husband and wife. And in fact, there are several English translations that translate 1 Timothy 2.12 as, I do not permit a wife to teach or have authority over a husband, but to be in silence. Well, even if you don't like that translation, like, well, you know, we, we like the King James, we, we like the New King James. That's fine. The context teaches us that it is talking about the relationship of a husband and wife. Because in the next verse, verse 13, Paul says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. Well, who was Eve? It was Adam's wife. Mm -hmm. Then the next passage, verse 14, he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing. Well, where does, where does childbearing take place? In the church? No, it's, this is talking about a family unit. This is talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they, if they continue in faith. Well, who are they? Well, presumably, we're talking about husband and wife. If they continue in faith, then holding this with self-control. So the context of 1 Timothy 2, when Paul says, let a woman learn in all submission or all subjection, I do not permit a woman to teach or usurp authority over a man, is talking about in the concept, uh, context of a husband and wife, that a wife is not to teach or domineer, that's the Another translation of usurp authority, not to domineer over her husband. So as I just mentioned, the verses prior to that, where it talks about the adorning, men praying everywhere, women in like manner, uh, the way they adorn their hair, wearing of gold or pearls or costly array. As apostolics, we readily go to 1 Peter 3 mm -hmm. as a parallel context to 1 Timothy 2, where it talks about men praying and women's adornment. But if we go on further, that it's also in relationship to, I do not permit a woman to teach or use of authority over the man, the illustration from the Old Testament, and the reason behind it. And 1 Peter 3 starts off with, 
Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Mm -hmm. So that's the same same terminology from 1 Timothy 2.11. Let a woman learn in silence in all subjection. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands when they observe your chaste con- uh, conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be the outward adornment arranging the hair, wearing of gold. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. For in this manner also, the uh, holy women of old trusted God, being submissive. Anytime you see that word, hupatage, uh, uh, submissive, every time it, it's used in relation to relationship to a woman, it is in reference to a wife to her husband. And then Peter, an Old Testament illustration, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, husbands likewise dwell with them in understanding, give an honor to the wife. Uh, as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together in the grace that your prayers, and then we have the context of men praying again. So in the book, I have, I don't know if I could, if I can flip and find it real quick. I have this neat little, I love charts. I love Mm -hmm. illustrations. If you have the Kindle version, uh, you probably have. um, Yes, it's got a lot of really great charts in there that I really enjoyed that you put in there. Are they full color in the Kindle version? You know what they are. They are full color. Good, because in the printed version, they're they're black and white. But I have this neat little chart. Well, you won't be able to see it that well in the screen, but I have this neat little chart where mm-hmm. I uh, compare First Timothy right. with, yes, first, yes. with with First Peter to show you the context is not dealing with gospel. I don't allow a woman to preach the gospel. It's dealing with the relationship of a wife to her husband. A wife is not to teach or domineer over her husband. Um, so that's, it has nothing to do with pulpit ministry in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's not Paul telling women that they can't preach any more than he told the, the tongue talkers or the prophets that they can't preach. I appreciate you explaining that because that really is something that we um, sometimes struggle understanding And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, it really is about women uh, being submissive to their husbands and not having authority, but it doesn't mean that they don't have any value or don't have anything to teach the church. And so sometimes people have the idea that women can only teach women. And I think a lot of that is, you know, the scripture that talks about how women should teach the younger women to wives and all of those things. And so a lot of times they're thinking if you're going to minister as a woman, the only person that you can minister is to other women at women's conferences. And I mean, that may be that's wonderful that you can, people can do that. Ladies can minister in that way, but I don't think that, um, that they can't also be a blessing or speak or, or minister to both men and women. And another thing that I wanted to mention is the role of education um, in this. And I know that at this time, women did not have the same education or didn't have the same access to education. And so when I read those scriptures, I think, you know, women couldn't teach many times because they didn't have the knowledge at the same level that men did. And so that access to education permitted them, like nowadays that wouldn't be a problem because we, our women are educated and know the word of God. But at that time, 
that wasn't necessarily the case. Like their husbands literally had to teach them and what they knew about the word of God, they were learning from their husbands, you know, at home. Right. Well, from, um, from a theological point of view, as far as women teaching men, uh, teaching them doctrine, teaching them the way of salvation, we have examples from the old Testament to the new. We have Deborah as a judge. She judged all of Israel. All of Israel came to her for judgment. And guess what? She was also a wife. Mm-hmm. She was the wife of, of Lapidoth. So all Israel came to her. That includes her husband. That includes the all male uh, priesthood. Um, you think about when the book of the law was found and they took it to the king and the king said, go inquire of, there were all sorts of male prophets he could have sent them to. Uh, uh Holda lived around the same time as Jeremiah and uh, Zechariah or Zephaniah, one of the two. He told them to go to the prophetess. And so he apparently didn't have any issues whatsoever with a woman expounding and explaining the written Torah, the written Mm -hmm. word in the New Testament, now still under the old dispensation. But in the New Testament, we have have, uh, honor the prophetess. She spoke of him to all that mm-hmm. looked for redemption in Jerusalem. It doesn't say she spoke to each. See, that's what we want. We want the women to go talk to people individually. But when she spoke to all, the only way she could have done that was from a public platform, somewhere mm-hmm. where the people in the temple, she could be at one location and she could speak to everybody. And the King James actually gives an alternate translation uh, instead of saying, uh, she spoke to all them who look for redemption in Jerusalem. It says all who look for redemption in Israel, which if that translation uh, has any value to it, then it could She was a traveling prophetess throughout Israel. And then we have the case of Priscilla and Aquila, who they expounded. The, the word expounded is third person plural. They expounded unto Apollos the word of God more perfectly. Uh, that doesn't doesn't mean that Priscilla was off in the kitchen making sandwiches while uh, while um, uh, Aquila was teaching Apollos. No, it's it's third person plural. They expounded. She was very much a part of expounding the truth, the way of God, more perfectly to Apollos. And then in Philippians 4, Paul specifically says to labor, to help those la- those women who labored with him in the gospel. And again, I have a chart on the phrase mm-hmm. in the gospel. And every time that phrase in the gospel is used, it is used in reference to someone who preaches the gospel. Paul, he even used um, the word labored there, son athleo, uh, or, or soon athleo, Athleo is where we, we get athletics, and, and soon athleo is like wrestled together in company. It's, it's describing the people in the match, in the game, who are working together, who are uh, almost like in Olympic games, or to, or to give it even a, a more modern illustration, what Paul's describing is the people on the same basketball team. Mm-hmm. He's he's saying the women played on the basketball team with the men, not that the women were up in the stands watching the game. So, yeah, oh yeah, and you know, and going back to something, we have no issues with women 
teaching Sunday school, teaching okay. children, teaching teaching the women, or and also teaching the women. And I'm not trying to make light of Sunday school teachers whatsoever, because I often say that the most important minister in your life, it's not the the general conference preacher. Yeah, they're going to have a message that you remember for all time. But the person that really made an impact, especially if you've been raised in church, the person that made an impact on you in your life, in your walk with God, is your Sunday school teacher. That sister so-and-so, that brother so-and-so who taught you in Sunday school, they they taught you. When you, when you were getting that gold star every Sunday for bringing your Bible, they were teaching you to respect and love God's word. When you got a gold star for bringing a quarter or a dollar in the offering, they were teaching you to be faithful in giving to the house of God. They taught you how to pray. You did memory verses. They taught you how to memorize and, and to hide that word in your heart. When they taught you, Father Abraham had sons of Father Abraham. We did the hand motions. You know what they were teaching you? How to praise and worship. Right. And so when you look back, uh, not not um, regulating women's ministry to Sunday school, but at the same time, I don't want to discount right. the influence that Sunday school teachers have in the ministry. That is, Sunday school is a ministry, but at the same time, let's not keep the women from behind the pulpit. Right. That's a good point. Cause it's those, those uh, teachers that were there Sunday through Sunday, you know, every, every week teaching and that consistency of pouring that into you, you know, year in and year in out. So I wanted to go into our next question. And so we're just talking about a lot of the biblical things and biblical characters. And we just mentioned Sunday school, but why is it important for women to have leadership roles in the church? And so in today, in our society in 2023, why is that important? And what are some of the advantages of having women um, behind the pulpit and, and in those leadership roles? Well, women can minister to men in a way that men can't minister to men. Uh, women can also minister to other women in the same way that a man can't minister to women. Um, generally, men are kind of analytical and, and women are a little more narrative in the way that they preach and, and teach. And it takes all of that as a body ministry to uh, expound the word of God, to, to reach this lost and dying world. Uh, when we're looking for laborers and the, and the fields are ripe for harvest, we don't need to be fussed and fighting over the, the gender of the people that are going to go out there in the harvest field to win the lost. Whether that's, uh, again, going back to the, well, you can go out and door knock and you can pass tracks, but bless God when you, you better not stand behind the pulpit. Why? <laughs> that's really where people need to check themselves that oppose women in the ministry, is if your issue is the fact that they can't get behind a piece of furniture, what is the problem with that? Mm -hmm. And, I feel like but, also it's like raising their voice. Sometimes it's like we think that preaching is like becoming, you know, exuberant and, and preaching. And so if a woman is going to stand behind the pulpit and not just talk kind of plainly, if she's going to raise her voice and be, you know, 
exhorting and kind of thing, then that's kind of scary because, oh no, that's, that's only th something that men do. And, you know, we can't let a woman kind of raise her voice and have any sort of authority because if she has some sort of authority or even sounds like she has an authority or, you know, anointing that is coming over her, then no, 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 that's reserved for men and women don't do that. And so sometimes I think that it's like, we'll let them testify and we'll call it testifying. Right. But if they get a little excited and God, you know, oh, then that's where we need to, you know, we, we need to start getting worried or maybe that's just kind of a little bit crossing the line. Well, in some of the earlier uh, women ministers in Pentecost, they, they understood that it, it's all in the way you say it. You know, mm -hmm. you said, you said testify. So they wouldn't go preach a revival. They'd go testify a <laughs> revival. Um, and, and so talking about the authority of it, we have no problem whatsoever with the gifts of the Spirit. I say we don't. Generally, we we don't have a problem with the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, we understand that women can speak in tongues. They can give a message in tongues. They can do interpretation. They can give a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and prophesy. But what you need to understand is that if God is inspiring them to speak a prophetic word, charismata, through a gift of the Spirit— they are then speaking in a position of authority. Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said that when one prophesies and the others hear, they are judged of all. Someone who judges is in a position of authority. Now, granted, that might be you know, for a short period of time as a gift of the Spirit, but the authority of the gifts of the Spirit are equal to the authority of preaching the Word. Paul said, all may prophesy that all may learn. Mm -hmm. If somebody's learning, somebody's doing some teaching. And through the gifts of the Spirit, we exhort, we comfort, we expound. 1 Corinthians 14, 3, I believe, is the passage. So if women are authorized by God, especially if they're authorized by God, through the Spirit of God speaking through them, more than just taking the written word and creating a lesson through that written word. And I think that going back to authority, this is where I feel like we get it really mixed up is because we think we don't want women to have authority, but it's not that women can't have authority. It's that women can't have authority over their husband, the submission. And so we kind of like mix it. It's like, we can't have women have authority over any men, but we realize that there is a discrepancy there because that's not an across the board thing. It's just, it's just when it's in relationship, uh, the relationship of a man and a wife. And so I like that when you first talk in your book, you base it out of the Genesis account. And so, you know, that's where that comes from. And so kind of helping people to understand where the misinterpretation really lies. Yeah, because in Genesis, the words that God speaks to Eve in regards Eve in two different aspects of her life, in pain, you will bear children. So that's a mother. Your desire shall be to your husband. That's as a wife. This is not all women's relationship to all men. Genesis 3 is again dealing with a very, it's kind of like First Timothy 2, and Paul did use the illustration of Adam was formed first, then Eve. So in Genesis 3, it is talking about the relationship, again, of a husband and wife. And we need to understand there is a difference between what goes on in the home 
and what goes on in the church. Uh, one of the things I kind of throw for a loop in there is, so I am not an egalitarian, and I am very much for uh, what is called headship in the home. The husband is the head of the wife, and that doesn't simply mean source. The word head is used in the sense of, of authority. Now, people will argue, the complementarians will argue, well, the uh, distinctive complementary roles between man and woman, man is the head of a woman, also applies to the church. And in a sense, I say, amen. But guess what? You're not the head of the church. Mm -hmm. There's only one head to the church, and that's Christ. Mm -hmm. So right. we do have male headship in the church. Christ is all our of our head. head. We are under submission to him. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says, submitting yourselves one to another, that is submission in the body, not in the home. That is, Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, uh, do not be drunk with wine, whereas in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Then after that, every one of those words that ends in I-N-G, those are participles in Greek, and they show the result or the overflowing of being filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another, speaking, so speaking to one one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks unto God and the Father and all things through him, submitting yourselves one to another. So in the ministry and in the body, there is male headship, but that headship is Christ, not our pastor, not the bishop, not, not the apostle, not the missionary. It's Christ. And so there is a distinction, though, between the, the order in the home and what goes on in the church. Otherwise, women would not be uh, anointed by God to prophesy. Because again, if someone who speaks a prophetic word is in a position, a God-ordained, a spirit-filled position of authority as they are speaking. And then again, we Go back to the Old Testament. We have the example of Deborah as a Deborah in her home was in subjection to Lapidoth, her husband, as, as her head. But when it came to the spiritual matters of Israel, she was the judge who judged all of Israel. And that's what I alluded to earlier when I said including her husband, mm -hmm. including that all-male priesthood. And I want to also go into asking, why do you think that there is a, such a disproportionate number of individuals to this day who still think that women should not be allowed to serve in ministry? I mean, and I'm just one of, in Christianity in general, but why do you think that is still happening today, even all of the things that we know? I would hope that it's because of a misunderstanding of those biblical passages. My experience is otherwise. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that there are those who just simply misunderstand the passages, but there are others that it's more of a misogynistic spirit, um, even, even from the women, because it's, it's not just men who oppose women in ministry. Uh, I was in a class at, at UGST and systematic theology and talked about women in ministry. And it wasn't simply the, they were okay with women ministers, but when we started talking about women as pastors, yeah, right. there was only like one or two ladies. And there was about, 
I don't know, 15 to 20 ladies in that class, but there was only like one or two that were okay with women pastors. So it was even the women because, you know, they don't want some other woman being in any kind of position of authority uh, over their, over their, uh, their husband or over their family. Uh, but again, we have a biblical precedent for that with Deborah from the Old Testament. We have the biblical precedent of just the gifts of the Spirit in and of themselves. Um, so again, I like to think that it's because of a misunderstanding of the scriptures. I think that sometimes it, it's not simply that. Right. There, there is some other underlying spirit behind it. And and again, I'm not an egalitarian, so I do not believe in equal authority in the home. I very much believe in male headship. My wife is, uh, she chooses, see, that's another thing about submission. Submission is not browbeating your wife and all that. Submission is a choice. And my mm-hmm. wife chooses to be in submission to me as her head in this house. Um, but when it comes to the ministry, oh, this is, we're, we're all going to get excommunicated <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and our, our license get pulled. But uh, it, it, it's kind of like the, the, the dichotomy of, well, you can go preach over there. You know, you can go over to Africa and preach and you can go over to Brazil and preach. But when you come over here and you preach in my neighborhood and, and behind this pulpit, maybe that because there's some money involved in that hmm. and they don't, you know, they don't want you kind of messing with their offering. I, I am, I'm, I'm guessing not really, but uh, because these are things that I've in the right. 30 yeah. years I've been in this, this truth, this things that I've, I've come across. I mean, I've seen them where they, they don't let women even sing on the platform that would make them sing in the floor. That's that's more of an extreme case. (laughs) But, you know, it really is true because you're right. There are some people that even though I have seen, even though that are those that you have explained it to and have shown in scripture and they're still really like choose, you know, the side. And I think it's, it's a mindset. It's just a really deep mindset. And I even have even said, it might even be like a, some sort of like stronghold kind of thing. It's like really a set in sort of their ways, but you know, it's something that only God can help them with. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and in some cases you get into the, if you show it to them from a biblical perspective, that that's not what these passages are saying, they'll always default to, well, I don't have to believe in women preachers to be saved. And I love, because this is just my kind of line in the sand mentality I'll say things like, well, what if you do? Right. Then what? <laughs> what, what, what? What if you do have to believe one preacher to be saved? Well, where's that coming from? Well, you see, women in ministry on the surface may not be a heaven or hell issue, but bigotry is. Right. Yeah. When people say things like, was well, that a heaven or hell issue? It probably is with you. <laughs> or you wouldn't be, right. a- <laughs> you probably, you wouldn't be asking that question. So when they say, well, I don't have to believe in them to be saved, you just might. You right. just might because because that just may be the woman preacher's issue may may just be the 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 festered sore that we see on the surface mm-hmm. and all of the 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 deep infection of your heart, the right. the bitterness and the bigotry and and whatever else is behind that attitude. Mm-hmm. And I would absolutely agree with that. I think that too, um, another part of that is that um, when you keep people from doing what God has called them to do, 
you know, that is a, is a kind of a, oh, you know, if, if God has called them and you're like, well, I just don't believe it because I don't want to believe it, even though I see it in the scripture, yeah. uh, that would be a scary thing to, a place to be. Um, but I also wanted to say, how can we change or correct these misconceptions? And that's kind of a, another kind of loaded question too. Um, I'm not really sure if there is a way other than just, just um, trying to educate people about what kinds of ways do you think that we can correct this? Well, you lady ministers have it tough because a minister can make a mistake in the pulpit and we'll just write it off. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, but if a lady minister makes a mistake in the pulpit, she then represents all women ministers. Right. And, and you have that, you know, I see there, I told you that's how them, them women preachers are. <laughs> then and now I'm really walking on thin ice. Then we add to that the ethnicity of the woman preacher. You know, whether she's Latino or African-American, then she not only represents all women preachers, she represents all women preachers of her ethnicity. And so you, you lady ministers have got to safeguard everything you do. And it's not fair. I, I get it. It's not fair. Uh, we have a good friend and fellow UGST alumni, uh, Lori Wagner. Mm-hmm. And there was there was something for social media. Social media is the greatest place to talk theology, isn't it? I don't I don't know anybody that's ever changed their mind. But uh, I had made a comment on something. Older, I sent her a message. And I said, "Do please do not comment on that. Yeah. Let let because they addressed it to her, and I said, please do not comment on that. Let me comment on it because mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. everything I say is not going to be taken." You could a lady minister could say the exact same thing that that I say, and one little thing, it's boom because you know she's a lady minister. But I could I can make all the statements, and it's not it's going to have a different result from uh, from me because I am a man. So my my advice to lady ministers is just keep on preaching, mm-hmm. just keep on doing what you're doing, keep keep on praying people through, keep on baptizing people in Jesus' name because the proof is in the pudding. When you say that God doesn't call women to preach, it sort of is. <laughs> right. They're, they're, they're out there doing it. They're out there baptizing people. They're, they're out there uh, preaching deliverance to people and through and casting out demons. So uh, I hope with prayer and through Bible study that uh, people will come around. I'll, I'll tell you this is a good plug. Uh, for the book, I've had two um, two pastors who preached on or taught lessons on women in ministry that used my book exclusively. They kind of followed the the format that I used from Genesis into the priesthood, into the women prophets in the Old Testament, into the New Testament, dealing with the problem versus into the New Testament and so on and so forth. One of those pastors who is also, uh, I think he's a UGST alumni now. I think he's graduated. I won't say his name, but anyway, um, he, when he was teaching on it at, at his church, he pastors about a couple hours from me in another state. And he started off, he had about a class of a hundred and he asked the class, how many of you in here believe in women in ministry? And out of a class of a hundred, he was the only person that raised his hand. By the, by the time, and then when he got into like the very first lesson, he said, how many of you here think that Eve 
is the cause of sickness and disease and sin in the world. And several hands went up. So when he got done with the lesson on Genesis uh, chapter three, which I I like to give little quirky uh, titles to the chapter. So that one is Trouble in Paradise uh, because they were in the Garden of Paradise. When he got done with that lesson, he said, now how many of you believe that Eve was the cause of sin and sickness and disease? Because she wasn't. Paul laid all the blame on one man. It wasn't until Adam ate that fruit that their eyes were opened. And when the Bible says that Eve ate the fruit and she gave it to her husband with her mm-hmm. in the Septuagint Greek Testament, that word with is the preposition mata. He wasn't over in the back 40. <laughs> he was right there. And he wasn't doing his husbandly job as her head, allowing this serpent to talk to her. Anyway, he, he said, how many of you believe that Eve is the cause of disease? Nobody raised their hand. By the end of his lessons on women in ministry, he then asked them, okay, how many of you now believe in women in ministry? He said, everybody except for one person raised their hand. And that one person was a new convert out of Catholicism. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a hundred percent, because that's a little little different. So hopefully through systematic theology type studies, like my book, uh, it will help displace some of this uh, bad hermeneutics and bad exegesis that has led people to uh, restrict women from pulpit ministry. Well, I also wanted to say, too, as you're mentioning, you know, women and and their, you know, ethnicity. And I also think for me as a single woman who is not married yet, um, you know, that's another thing. But I think that it's so important, um, like you mentioned, you know, the comment that was made to Sister Lori Wagner, whatever that kind of looked like. It's so important for me to have men speak on these topics, you know, because we have a lot of women and, and I believe in this and I have a lot to say in it, but it makes such a difference when we have apostolic Holy Ghost men like yourself who have studied and can say, wait a minute, you know, that that's not that because like you just said, it, it's received differently and right. it is really sad, but the more we have, and I'm so thankful for people like brother David Bernard and brother Norris and so many of those and yourself who are speaking on this, Daniel Corin, who wrote, uh, yes. he called her and, and writing these books and talking about this stuff, because it's not just, you know, women just running their mouths and just, you know, we want this and we want power and we want authority. And it's not really, it's not about that, but understand that um you know men are researching this and understanding what the scripture says and able to also speak on this subject is such a huge is such a huge win you know for all of us so i do appreciate that you mentioned brother corin interesting thing between uh, he and i is uh we didn't know each other prior to writing our books i had no idea that he was working his dissertation or his uh, master's thesis into a book form through uh, word of flame. And he had no, he didn't know me. I didn't know him, but at the same time, we're both writing books on women in ministry. His is a very, and I'll give a shout out to his book. He called her, uh, his is a very narrative storytelling style. Mine is more of a systematic theology. So they really complement each other. So at the same time, he's writing his book on women in ministry. I'm writing my book on women in ministry. He asked Joe Strand to write the foreword or, or preface to his, whichever one. I dedicated mine to Janice Joe Strand mm-hmm. because, because my first experience in an apostolic church 
was in Janice Jostrand's Sunday school classroom when I was 17 years old. Wow. So that that's pretty cool that they they complement each other. And now Brother Corn and I know each other. We're both uh, UGST alumni, and, and we've exchanged emails and texts back and forth. That's very cool. And I think too about Sister Janice Jostrand. And um, I just had uh, Brother. Cedric and Sister Rosalind Austin, and one of the things that he mentioned is why he never had a problem with women in ministry is because he grew up knowing Sister Janice Sostrand mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing her and her husband preach together in ministry. And so when he, you know, met this remarkable woman, Sister Rosalind, and, and she's a minister, it was just like, well, you know, okay, we're going to do this together. There was never even a problem because what a wonderful example um, that you guys have had. And so, you know, I believe too, like you mentioned, the more of these examples that we have, the more it's going to just be like, it's not even going to be as big of a deal as time goes on. It's just going to be like, hey, sister, so-and-so is preaching general conference, you know, or it's not even going to be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. What on earth was, you know, Brother Bernard thinking, letting her preach. It's just going to be such a natural thing. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm thankful that we are at least going in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a movement, we've always had women ministry. We talked about right. Agnes Osmond. We talked about Lucy Farrow. So women in ministry is not something that just sprung up exactly. overnight. Uh, and as an organization since 1945, when the UPCI was formed through the merger of two organizations, the UPCI has always licensed women. They've always recognized women as pastors. So it's, again, it's not like some new issue that's come up or like, see how licensed ministers, what, when do they start that? They've been doing this longer than, than we've been licensed in their organization. So don't act all surprised about women in ministry. Uh, we need more women preaching conferences. We need more licensed women in ministry. We have a couple, I won't say their name, if they watch this podcast, they'll know exactly who they are because she'll remember the story. Uh, and the people in our church will know because I'll give enough clues. But we have this couple in our church and and we, my wife and I and another lady, um, well, uh, the other lady is uh, also a UGST alumni, uh, Sonia Canfield, mm -hmm. and, and she works in counseling, you know, Sonia. Uh, well, so my wife, Nicole and I and Sonia, we help these two other uh, people. And the wife is also, she has a master's degree in counseling. She's a counselor. Uh, we help them get a celebrate recovery ministry started in our church. Well, the wife all was already doing a kitchen ministry, feeding the people community. And then on top of that, doing this celebrate recovery ministry. And then her husband went to get his license. And when they announced that he got his license after church, I walked up to the wife and I said, was that a two for one deal? And she yeah. said, no. And I said, sister, you are ministering to more people in this community than a lot of preachers, licensed preachers who get behind our pulpit mm -hmm. and preach from the Bible. There's no reason why you don't have your license. And we need, the, the UPCI needs more licensed women ministers. We need more uh, women ministers speaking at conferences, speaking in revivals, because there is a way through the way that women minister, there is a way that women can minister to a certain, in, in a certain way that men can't. They can reach men in a way that other men can't, and they can speak to women certainly in the way that, that men can't. It is a body ministry. And if we're 
uh, not allowing all of the body to minister, then we are basically crippling the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. That's really good. And I know that you and I can probably talk forever on this subject, but I wanted yeah. to go ahead and just tell all of our listeners where you can get your book or where we can purchase your book. Cause I purchased it on Amazon and I mm-hmm. got it on Kindle, but I think I'm actually going to get it in a physical form. Um, so I can actually have it in my hand and do the highlighting and pick it up and get it out. So is there any other place that you can get your book at? Uh, and unless I have copies and you happen to see me in person and I have those copies with me, the easiest place is on Amazon. It's available in paperback. It's available as a hardback. This is a, this is a, a, a hard, you can see the, see the mm-hmm. glare when I change it's available on hardcover. It is available on, I would highly recommend a physical book, yeah. not just because I like physical books, but when you, when you submit it to Kindle, for like an ebook, you have to delete all the formatting. So mm. it's all basic fonts. You lose the, all the headings have got this full little uh, calligraphy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you lose all that in, in Kindle, you do get the full color charts, uh, but it's so great. Was the company of women an apostolic theology of women in ministry. It's available on, Amazon. And I do have three other books. The first book I ever wrote is on water baptism in Jesus name. Um, And some people may be rolling their eyes going, not another book on the baptismal formula. Mine deals with the theology of invoking the name, the covenant relationship of invoking the name. Um, And it is called calling on the name of Jesus, an apostolic apologetics on the baptismal formula. And then um, I have a book. This book is actually uh, came out from this book. So chapter seven, I believe it is in this book, also deals with the issue of women's hair or head coverings. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, this book, I like to call this the longer uncut version, all puns intended, of about First Corinthians chapter 11. It's called A Woman's Glory, A Look at Headship, Head Covering, and Hair. Uh, it's one of the very few uh, systematic uh, theology type uh, exegesis of First Corinthians 11 from an apostolic point of view. I mean, Dr. Seagraves wrote a book years ago, but it was late 70s, early 80s. It hasn't really been updated. I think Sister Jasowski has a book, Her Hair, Her Glory, or yeah. something to that effect. But but other than that, there's I don't know of really any other book that that goes into it. And again, it, I mean, I just opened one page and. You see there's charts and diagrams all all throughout it. And then the last book, last but certainly not least, is uh, it is a self-published version of my master's thesis on eschatology, and it's called Then Comes the End. But they are all available on Amazon in paperback, hardback, and Kindle. And that's the, the best place. All you got to do is go to Amazon and in the search bar, type in Jason Weatherly and they'll, they'll come up. 
Okay. And when we do the podcast, it comes out, definitely put all the list of the books in the description. So you will all know if you um, cannot remember or something, or you needed spelling of all of that to type it into Amazon and purchase them. So make sure that you get Brother Jason Weatherly's books. So thank you so much. Like I said, there are so many other things that come to mind and we could probably talk for another two hours, but I am so thankful um, for spending time with us today and sharing so much of your knowledge and um, it has been insightful and it has been helpful and I know that it will be a blessing to all who listen. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been awesome time getting to visit with you and, and discuss the word of God. Thank you so much. All right. Well, to all of our listeners, God bless and we will be on again. God bless. Bye-bye.